Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 and uh, we'll begin. Let's, let's pray before we get started. Father, I just want to thank you so much for this night. Father God, I want to thank you for, uh, for loving people like us, Father God, for loving people like me. Um, Lord, I know that when you looked at all of us, I know when you looked at me, there, there was nothing. I mean, there's absolutely nothing that you saw that would, would ever catch your eye. Um, it, it's just because of who you are, Father that any of us are saved. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for the, the truth of the gospel. And uh, Lord, tonight I just pray that you would, you would give me grace um, to preach what you want to be preached tonight, the right way, in the right tone, with the right timing, everything, Father. Um, please just fill me with your Holy Spirit tonight. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just... Uh, that you would guard my mouth, that you draw out everything that you want drawn out, and that you'd prevent anything from crossing my lips that shouldn't. I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to see the glory of Jesus tonight. Father, please protect us from, from apathy and indifference, Lord God, from the mundane. Don't let us come in and just uh, it just be another night where we come we kind of go through the motions and, and things like that, Father. I just pray that tonight that your word would, would stir us. Father, I, I ask that we'd all have the mindset that we should have every time we come together, that you are actively speaking your words to us. And regardless of what man's preaching, regardless of, of, of what style it's presented in, uh, if it's biblical, it's you speaking to our hearts. I pray that we would just hear it and we'd receive it that way, and our lives would be changed because of it, Father. Um, as the body of Christ, Jesus deserves uh, our best. So please give us the grace to, to line up with your word and give him the very best that we can, what he deserves. And it's in his name we pray, Father. Amen. Uh, now, last week, uh, we saw that Jesus had just begun to prove his Messiahship by doing something that really nobody had ever done before. Um, he reached out and he touched a leper to heal him. And because Jesus had come to confront all of our sin and all of our death, um, he was in no way intimidated by this man's sickness. He healed him. And in the same way, he's not intimidated by anything that we have in our lives. He's not intimidated by any of our sin. He's not intimidated by our struggles. The, the things that haunt us the most, he's already conquered and he is in no way fearful or anxious or, or even apathetic toward those things. He doesn't buffer himself from those things at all. He's already fully shouldered them and he's dealt with them and he's conquered them. So we can trust him. Then we see, beginning in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8, that Matthew writes, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So here, Matthew records this encounter between Jesus and this centurion. And you know, to Matthew's Jewish audience... Uh, what happens here would have been just totally amazing. Uh, To begin with, this man had two strikes against him. He was both a Gentile and he was a commander in the Roman military. Now, it's been... Uh, you know, everybody knows, it's been well documented, that the Jews have uh, long held a certain disdain for Gentiles. Uh, However, Israel at this point in time had also fallen under Roman occupation. And for the most part, the Jews were just not fond of their conquerors. Nobody likes to be occupied by another country and subjected to extra taxation, subjected to uh, different laws or a different way of doing things. And the Jews were not fond of their conquerors. And it's most likely, excuse me, it most likely would have stood out then to the Jewish audience that Matthew was addressing, that Jesus would either, excuse me, even consider agreeing to help this man. Like when the Jews thought of the Messiah that was to come during this time, they pictured him as uh, the way Christ is going to return the next time. They skipped past uh, what we celebrate here at Christmas, the baby in the manger, and they honed in more on the uh, apocalyptic message of the Messiah coming and being a conquering king on a white horse with an army behind him. And they expected the Messiah to come and bring destruction upon their enemies and conquer the Roman army, not be nice to them. This, if Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, which he is, and if he's teaching like no one had ever taught before, which he is, and if he's proving to be the Messiah with the testing works, which he has started doing, this action of being kind to this centurion would have totally thrown all his Jewish followers for a loop. Now, obviously, this man had heard of Jesus. You know, maybe he had heard that he had just cleansed uh, the leper that we spoke of last week, or maybe even someone else who remains unrecorded in Scripture. But in any case, he says to Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And the request in his statement there is obviously understood. He's not just telling Jesus, oh, by the way, I've got a sick guy at my house. There's an understood request. He wanted Jesus to heal his servant. And to this request, Jesus responds in a way that kind of stands out. He says, I will come and heal him. That reply almost seems forceful or almost enthusiastic on the part of Jesus. Now, I say it stands out because at other times, uh, Jesus responded in a less assertive manner. Like to give you an example, um, in Matthew 20, we have the account of the two blind men that are crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Right? They come up to Jesus. They're forceful. They're pushing through. They won't be quieted. Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Well, obviously they're blind. I mean, it was, you know, he, he doesn't get right to the point and say, I'll heal you. He says, what do you want me to do for you? In the face of these blind men that have come seeking him in such a loud, rambunctious way. Uh, or 
What about the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who had a demonized daughter? If you look back at that occurrence, it seems that Jesus is almost dismissive or even almost unwilling to help her at first. Remember, he says it's, it's not right to give the, bre- the children's bread to the dogs, right? Until she says, well, my Lord, even the dogs eat, eat the crumbs that fall off the children's table. Then he frees her daughter from the holes of the demon. But here in chapter 8, Jesus seems to force the issue. He immediately says, I'm coming to heal your servant. So the question we have to ask is, why would Jesus react that way? It's interesting that Jesus seemed to determine to heal this servant before the issue of the centurion's faith came to the surface. Um, At this point in the conversation, the centurion hadn't said anything that would prove faith definitively. Uh, And Jesus still seems driven to heal his servant. Jesus was going to heal this servant for his own purposes. He was taking the opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson that they never would have expected that day as they simply traveled through Capernaum. He was about to breach the topic of salvation being extended to the Gentiles. Jesus had a purpose. This was an object lesson that he was going to teach regardless of any factors outside of his own will. Or, of course, his father's will. This is most likely why they're in Capernaum, by the way. This region is over 78 miles from Jerusalem. Um, Perhaps Jesus picked this area to be the place where such an earth-shaking topic would be presented because it was a long way from the religious rulers uh, who were in Jerusalem. You know, his, his fledgling disciples here would most likely have struggled with this idea to begin with, without any help from anybody else. Um, They had been raised their entire lives to believe that salvation belonged to one group and one group only, the Jews, the biological descendants of Abraham. If Jesus had presented this idea to his followers while in Jerusalem, it might be that the ferocity of the opposition there would have hindered his disciples in their acceptance of this truth. Jesus was determined to present a kind of introduction to this lesson to his disciples in this setting because, as he often does, he was going to protect his little flock from Satan's attempt to swoop in and steal away these seeds of truth before they could take root in their hearts. He was going to gently and slowly uh, teach this lesson. And he'd have time to do that. He, uh, He would have approximately three years give or take, with his disciples. And he didn't have to cram this major lesson down their throat on the first day. Can you imagine their brains going into overload? Something they'd been taught their entire lives from almost birth. And all of a sudden, the man who has taught like no one else and done what no one else has done, and he's done a few miracles, and they're starting to think, man, this guy must really be from God. And all of a sudden, he says something as earth-shattering as that. Can you imagine what, what they would have to deal with internally? He gives them time to acclimate to it. And we see that as Jesus gets closer and closer uh, to his time to die, he's going to become more forceful and he's going to become more insistent upon this lesson as well as others. However, as he often does with us, he allowed these followers time to acclimate to some hard truths. And while this would have been a hard truth for the Jews to accept, it wasn't a new truth. 
the idea that Gentiles would be saved, it's always been woven throughout the Old Testament. Salvation, to give a few examples, salvation came to the house of Rahab at Jericho because of her faith. She was not only a, a Gentile, she was a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. In Luke 4, Jesus references the widow of Sidon and Naaman of Syria as examples of such grace being extended to those outside of Israel. And the prophets also bore witness to this truth. Isaiah spoke of the day of the Lord, saying, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And as we talked about before, uh, there, there is only one Israel of God, but that Israel of God has never been uh, about a biological DNA lineage. It's always been the descendants of Abraham according to the faith. It's always been the elect of God from all nations. Um, there's always been a plan that the Israel of God would be made up of people from every, t every tribe and every nation and every tongue that would one day stand before the throne of our God and sing the, the, the song of the Lamb and praise Him for eternity. It's always been that way. And that's threaded all throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't teaching anything new, but He's teaching something that was not only new to His disciples, but it was painful, maybe. That may be the best way I can put it. Painful to embrace. Because it was such a dearly and closely held fact of their theology that only Jews would be saved. And like I said, while this had always been a biblical truth, the Jews had traditionally rejected this idea. So Jesus is going to use this situation that we're talking about to begin changing his disciples' mind. And just as a side note, I think it bears pointing out that often God does this with us gently and over time. I know that, you know, Brother Tony and Brother Kyle and I and some others are in. We, you know, we've grown over the last few years together. God has seen fit to bring us together, and, and these guys are, are, are brothers that I, I don't deserve, and I've never had anybody in my life just like them, and uh, especially Kyle. <laughs> and uh, everybody saw that coming, so I had to throw it in. Um, but, you know, we've grown together, and I know that over time, uh, over the years, God has often challenged, challenged my mind. And in order to present me with some of the most dearly held, most doctrinally correct biblical truths, things that ground your faith and really establish your heart in the love of Christ, he had to do it slowly. He had to do it over time. And to be honest with you, at times it was scary. At times it was painful. I mean, what God really does is unashamedly come in and often sticks our face 
into the Word of God and says, if you're going to be serious about your relationship with me, you need to know me, not who you've heard that I am, not who your grandmother said I am, not who you want me to be. Look at me. Just look at me. And he sticks our face in the Word and we see the image of Christ in Scripture and it always challenges what we have always believed before about some things. And eventually, if we're serious enough about it, it challenges what we've always believed before about everything. Everything. Because none of us have had any facet of the faith perfectly shaved down to where it ought to be. And when he does that, he's literally changing the constructs of your mental processes about the most important thing in your entire life. Him. Your relationship with Him. Your understanding of Him. Your devotion to Him. He's changing it all. And he will do that through the duration of our lives. And we have to allow the word to come in for the duration of our lives and destroy strong, strongholds and long-held opinions and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And thank God that when he does that, he doesn't cram it down our throat the first day. He's gentle. He's long-suffering. He gives us time. It's like Brother Tony says so many times. It's like yeast in the dough. He gives it time to acclimate. So that's what Jesus is going to start doing here. He's going to introduce this major groundbreaking idea. He's not going to ram it down the throat. He's going to give him, he's, he's going to give him a solid proof. He's going, to, he's going to directly address it, but he's also going to do it in such a way and in such a setting that he kind of lets it, he lets it start growing in their heart. So in order to present this lesson, it seems that God had granted this particular centurion a certain type of faith. Saving faith. Again, this region under Roman occupation was positioned in sort of an outlying area. Uh, since Capernaum was located so far from Jerusalem, which was both the religious and the political hub of the area in that day, it's likely that the higher ranking dignitaries and commanders and authorities would not have frequented this region much. They would have stayed more in the political hot spot. You know politicians are, right? They, don't, they, don't, they have no interest in coming to... If you run for president, you don't come to Mize to do a rally, right? You're going to pick up all 27 votes and then you're going to go on about your way, right? You go somewhere where there's a lot of people. You go somewhere where maybe it's a, it's a controversial area, right? If we watch our presidential elections, you look and they, they always want to win those, you know, whatever they call, you know, not border states, but the, those, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Yeah, swing states. I was going to say seesaw states. That's a different playground implement. <laughs> Lucas, you can edit that if you want to or leave it. But uh, I just hope somebody gets saved. That's all. I, but, uh, but, you know, Lucas, if you don't edit it, I hope you get saved. But anyway, no. I, uh, but uh, no pressure. Anyway, um, but, you know, we know how they, they go where the political hot spot is, right? That's what they always do. Well, you know, these guys weren't going to go hang out in Capernaum. It's, 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 it's miles away from anything that's really happening. So what that tells us is, is that this man, this centurion, who is a commander, of course, of at least 100 troops in the Roman military, he most likely was used to ruling this area with a certain amount of sovereignty. Uh, he was probably the top of the heap, so to speak, most days. Um, but then, knowing that, we see that he came to Jesus appealing to him. 
You have a commander in the Roman military who is used to calling all the shots in his whole world right there in his little local area most of the time. And he's coming to not only another man, someone that's not in the military, you're coming, you're coming to someone who's a lowly Jew. And where this man is used to making demands of people and they instantly do it, he comes to Jesus with a request. He makes an appeal to him. That stands out. And to this, Jesus responds in a way that gives us some insight as to the nature of this man's faith. We see in verse 10, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you that no one in Israel... In no one, excuse me, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So Matthew says that at this man's demonstration of faith, Jesus marveled. He tamazo in the Greek. It literally means that he admired this or he was greatly pleased with this. So we have to ask the question, what type of faith does it take to please God? Because the faith is obviously what Jesus was marveling at. He turned to his disciples and said, Truly, I'd say with nobody in Israel have I seen this type of faith. This is what he's marveling over. So what type of faith does it take to please God? Well, we see it in the negative in Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So without the type of faith we see in Hebrews eleven six, we can't please God. We see in Matthew chapter 8 that Jesus, God, is pleased with this man's faith. So what kind of faith are we talking about here? Well, the word there, of course, is pistis. It's biblically, this is the term always used for saving faith. And it's the same word, like we said, used for the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8.10. So we know that this man's faith is saving faith because of the kind of faith being referenced here. We also know that this is saving faith because of the context. You know, you might be sitting there saying, well, I don't know that saving faith. I mean, it's just, it's a word. I don't speak Greek. You know, you know, means maybe, you know, you may get a strong concordance out and try to start putting words in there. Well, look at the context. It's the same. Again, we read in verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus here is saying two things about faith and salvation. First of all, he says, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the same group. This, this is the same group here. Um, by the sons of the kingdom, Jesus means, of course, those of the nation of Israel, according to the flesh. The descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen, according to Romans chapter 9. 
However, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Because they would fail to trust that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Many who are Israelites according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be cast into hell because of their unbelief. And in that place, the misery suffered there will be multifaceted. It will be extreme and it will be eternal. There, of course, will be physical suffering. The flames of God's wrath do us because of our sin. It is forever going to be consuming those who are there. And they're forever going to be suffering and forever going to be in the, in the process of dying without the relief of, at that point, sweet death. These people that will spend eternity in the flames of hell will want nothing more than death to visit them. So that it all just ends, but it will never come. However, to increase the suffering, one thing I think we don't meditate on enough is this. To increase the suffering will be the understanding of what they have forfeited. While those who had every opportunity to hear and believe the gospel but failed to do so are thrown into outer darkness and suffering, others will take the place that could have been theirs. One of the most offensive statements that Jesus could have made to any of the Jews of his day or any, most likely any of the Jews today would not be that Jews will go to hell. It's that some Jews would go to hell and in their place where they could have sat in heaven, a Gentile would sit. That was the most offensive thing he could have said to them about this topic. That Gentiles would sit next to the fathers, next to Abraham, next to Isaac, next to Jacob, instead of them. And the same is true for us. For those of us who have heard the gospel over and over and over in a land where we are so close to a church in every direction, we're always within driving distance or maybe even walking distance from a church. How painful it will be as the flames consume us to know that in the seat which we could have had, another who did believe is enjoying Christ for eternity. That's, that's a sobering thought. Jesus expressed that he had not seen such faith as this centurion had in all of Israel. And immediately he related how many Israelites will go to hell due to such unbelief. This means that the faith which he is speaking of must be faith for salvation. That's the whole context. It has to be. And secondly, in the context of the centurion's faith, he describes those who will be saved. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus says this within the context of the centurion's faith. He's pointing to this Roman soldier as an example of the Gentiles who will be saved. This would have been hard, of course, for the disciples to grasp, like we said, but the truth is that if God chooses to grant true faith to anyone, they will be saved. Period. Paragraph. End of discussion. Many of us listening, whether here or 
over the internet have had to come to terms at some point in time with the same truth. Some have struggled with the idea that God will save people from a certain ethnicity or a certain culture. It didn't come easy. Maybe the idea that God would save black people, the idea that God would save uh, Latinos, the idea that God would save any group that to us would, be, would, would consist of a minority group or make up a minority, you know, that may be hard for some of us to come to terms with. Or if not us, somebody that we know or that we're related to, it might have been really hard for them to come to terms with it. It may have been a struggle. Some have had a hard time trusting that God would save people out of certain cults or other belief systems. You know, sometimes we write it off and we just kind of in our minds group people in uh, a certain scenario or a certain situation. We think, well, they're in this group over here. So it's almost in our mind, in our mental construct, we say, we put them in that box and say, well, they're just lost forever. And it really shows in the way that we evangelize and the way that we pray and the way that we do or don't share the gospel to reach out to certain groups. We just assume that they're lost forever. And that's, that's a mistake. Some, some maybe listening right now, have even had a hard time believing that God would save people who have committed some pretty heinous sins. You know, you, you, can, go to, uh, you can go to the prison and you can talk to people who have done some pretty horrible things. And in moments of levity, they'll actually divulge the things they've really done that they may not have told anybody else. And it, it can be very easy our human logic to think that person is beyond saving. And you might have even doubted that he would save you after the things you've done. I think some of us have probably had that struggle. I'll be honest with you. At one point in time in my life, that was a major struggle for me. I looked at my sin and my sin seemed so great. I'm like, there's just no way. And God had to open the eyes of my heart and see how much greater Jesus is than all the sin I could possibly scrape together and bring to the table. Until he did that, it seemed impossible. And if we really look at our sin until we do see how awesome and how amazing, how huge the sacrifice of Christ really is, it is impossible. We may have dealt with that. The fact remains, as Peter said it, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In Romans 9, 15 and 16, it tells us, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The will of God is supreme, and the blood of Christ is sufficient. He saves whoever he wants, period. He does it by His grace. He does it by hearing of the Word, supplying faith. But He does it. Why? He wants to. And He's God. And there's nothing we can bring to the table that's going to stop Him if that's His sovereign will. So, what was it about this kind of faith that stirred admiration or pleasure in Jesus? Well, we're we're given our answer... As the centurion describes his own trust in Jesus' authority. He begins in verse 8 by saying, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
We know from Luke's account that this man knew the Jewish customs and that he was respectful of them. He knew that a Jew should not enter the home of a Gentile because it would make him ceremonially unclean. However, he didn't say to Jesus, I know it's unlawful for you to enter my, my house. He said, I'm not worthy. He seems to have a sense of lacking in the presence of Christ, of, of being unfit, if you will. And saving faith initially brings us to this conclusion. True saving faith shows us how unfit we really are. When God grants us faith, when we are made regenerate by the Holy Spirit's work, we see that we are guilty and condemned and that God should not have anything to do with us. Also, we see that Jesus is the only one with the authority to speak forgiveness and cleansing and healing over us. So we run to Him for mercy, trusting His goodness also. This is another way in which the Gentile demonstrated faith. He came to Jesus with an appeal. As a Roman commander, he came humbly to Jesus as the one having enough authority to meet the need that he had no power and no authority and no way of meeting. And the centurion continued to express the nature of his belief as he said to Jesus, Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man believed that Jesus had not only authority, he believed Jesus had total authority. He expressed his belief and understanding of Jesus' authority and position by relating it to military authority in which the commander says and it's done. And oh, by the way, refusal to obey, well, that's just really not an option, is it? In the military, refusal to, refusal to obey is not really an option. You can do it, but it comes with extreme consequences could be very life-changing. This man believed that Jesus had the authority to heal his servant with just a command. His faith is perhaps best depicted, I think, in the way that he comes and addresses Jesus right off the bat. He comes addressing him as Lord. Not teacher. Not rabbi. Not miracle worker. Lord, this commander came to this Jew and said, Lord, I need you to do something for me. This type of faith depicts the only type of saving faith that there really is. Faith in Jesus as your Lord. In America, we have, I believe ever since the 50s or 60s, we have begun to make, we've, we've begun to make so much of Jesus being our personal Savior to the neglect of Jesus being our personal Lord. We've developed a type of Christianity in America that we call easy believism. And by the way, here we say it with a certain amount of disdain that it merits. Uh, but we've developed some type of easy believism where we kind of teach people to come to Christ so that they can be saved and so that Jesus can give them everything they want and life is amazing and it does not really cost you anything. 
Our churches say it costs you something. Say, oh, serving Jesus will cost you everything. Really now? What? I would challenge anybody that's listening, here, over the internet, whatever, take a moment and catalog what has serving Christ really cost you. What is it costing you now? Because when you serve a Lord who saves you, it's going to cost you. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong totally to Him. The only type of true salvation is relational salvation, and the relationship is a slave to the Lord who saves him for his own purposes. This type of faith believes that Jesus has authority to condemn or to save regardless of anything to do with me. This faith also says that Jesus is the Lord of my life and is superior in every way. He's smarter and he's wiser than I am. He's perfectly righteous and he cannot sin. He has the right to command and punish disobedience. He deserves the demands. He deserves and demands obedience that is costly. And if I'm experiencing great or little motivation, none of those factors really matter right now. When He commands, it doesn't matter if I feel great affection or if I don't. It doesn't matter if the cost of obeying Him is easy or if it's hard. It doesn't matter if, if obeying Him is convenient or not. It just doesn't matter. All that matters is that He is the Lord and He still deserves my obedience Because of who he is. And as a side note, this type of salvation, I know, is going to sound very cold to some people. There are certain groups, there are certain circles um, that harp so much on uh, the loving side of Christ for, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. We we should harp on the loving side of Christ. But a, a caricature of the loving side of Christ that serving Jesus without inflated, affectionate emotions seems alien, seems almost wrong. That's just not true. Jesus always equates love with obedience. In 1 John 5, 3, the word says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. In fact, our Lord lets us know that without obedience, we cannot love Him. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Sometimes, I obey out of feelings of affection. Sometimes, I obey out of duty. Sometimes, I obey out of fear. Because He disciplines those who disobey. The point is that I should always obey my Lord and I should always want to obey my Lord. And if I obey just because he said so, that's not wrong, that's right. That's what happens between a servant and his Lord. It's just part of loving him for who he really is. And this type of faith that stirred admiration in the heart of Jesus is the type of faith that pleases the Lord today. If you want to know how to please the Lord, obey Him. What if it's hard? Obey Him. What if I don't feel like it? Obey Him. What if I don't know every... What if I don't get it perfect? Obey Him. He's the Lord. 
If he literally was a king standing here with the authority to take even your physical life or to reward you greatly if you obeyed, there would be no question, would there? There's only a question because sometimes we doubt. And why do we doubt? Because we can't see him. But one day when he rips the eastern sky open and we see him, every single decision that I've made or you've made that was anything outside of obedience to his commands, we will regret. Though we be saved and though we be in Christ, we will regret all those decisions. Obey him. So we see another truth about such faith in Jesus as Lord in verse 13. It says, And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It seems that where Jesus was going to heal this servant, regardless of the centurion's faith or lack thereof, he is now allowing this man, who has just proven faith in him as Lord, to become an active participant in this work, in this miracle. In verse 7, Jesus was going to act in solidarity. He said, I will come and I will heal him. Now in verse 13, Jesus grants this man participation in this miracle that he was going to accomplish anyway. He says, you go and let it be done for you as you have believed. You see, the Lord was saying, I will do, I will do. Now he's saying, you go, you do, you do. Same work. But now the man is becoming an active participant. Because this centurion had proven to be a servant of Christ through faith, the Lord now allows him some ownership of the work at hand. 1 Corinthians 3.9 tells us, For we are God's fellow workers. When we are granted true faith, we receive a share in the building of the kingdom. We get a stake in this, guys. We get some ownership in this as heirs of the kingdom. It's not that the Lord needs us. Please don't misunderstand this. Jesus doesn't need you or me or anybody else. He is before all things. He is. He created all things. All things are held together by Him. He doesn't need anybody. But in His love and in His mercy, He lovingly allows us to take an active role in the building of the kingdom through prayer and in preaching and witnessing and acts of obedience and benevolence so that we may share in the joy of our Lord as He builds His kingdom. That's a great gift. And it's a gift that only comes with faith. By the way, when God grants you faith and you're born into the kingdom... Like we said, you become a servant of Christ. He gives you a call and he commands action of you. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we claim to have faith, we should also be laying claim to kingdom work. Something to meditate upon. So Jesus has proven his authority as the Messiah by healing the leper. He has proven his Messiahship again this time in the realm of the Gentiles by healing his servant, excuse me, healing this servant of the centurion. At this point, again, one of Jesus' main concerns was that his disciples begin to grasp this great lesson that salvation would be extended to men and women from all nations and ethnicities and cultures to us. In this room tonight, obviously, there would be an opportunity to doubt. 
Anytime we receive a truth from Christ, you know, Satan is there to deceive or our own nature attacks trying to reject what we have just learned. How many people upon hearing the truth of God's Word, both today and over the ages, have responded by saying of something in the Bible, it can't really say that. You ever heard anybody say that? Quote a Bible verse that doesn't seem very convenient, and somebody comes back with, well, I mean, it can't really be saying that. Or, God can't really mean that. Our carnal hearts... When we take that stance, our carnal hearts then continue down that road trying to set about to support our objections using not truth, but our worldly fallen logic, doesn't it? We say things like, well, that can't really be a sin because, I mean, I have friends who do that and they're good people. You ever heard that? Or, well, that was written a long time ago. Things are different now. Start preaching the truth and all of a sudden people say, well, that was written a long time ago. Or, a loving God couldn't possibly be that cruel. Or, God will be okay with whatever because He knows my heart. Yes, He does. And He tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick and you can't understand it. For us to continue to grow in understanding of and obedience to the will of God, He must continually support our faith for us. He does this through the Word of God. You study and the Holy Spirit impresses the truth upon your mind. That's how it works. Your job, study. His job, impress the truth. Illuminate your mind as to the truth. Grow your knowing of the truth. Grow your understanding and your trust in the truth. This is more substantial than any experience, by the way. Peter, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who saw Jesus in all of his glory, along with Moses and Elijah, spoke of that account and then said these words, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now that would be a pretty amazing experience, wouldn't you say? If you could literally say, I was out in the woods and all of a sudden, literally, Jesus in all his glory showed up with Moses and Elijah and I heard the voice of the Heavenly Father speak to me and say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That would be the most amazing experience anybody you know has ever had. And still, the word of God is more fully confirmed than that experience. You should trust what the Bible says more than you would that experience. The man who experienced that said that being led by the Holy Spirit. To ensure the faith of his disciples in what had just been taught, Jesus, who is the living embodiment of the word, put a definitive period on this teaching about salvation for the Gentiles by again proving his Messiahship, this time in mass fashion. Matthew lets us know that the centurion's servant was healed. However, we're not sure that all the disciples actually saw this. Most likely, they didn't go to his house. They surely didn't enter into his house. They, they knew somehow, but we're not sure exactly how they know that this servant was healed. However, we see in verses 14 through 17 that Jesus did something they would all witness as another assurance that he is the Son of God and, oh, by the way, has the right and the authority to say who gets to be saved and who doesn't. 
Beginning in verse 14, we read, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So the Lord who proved to be able to heal with a word in the eyes of the Gentiles and taught that the Gentiles would be saved, also proved in the eyes of his disciples that he had the authority not only to heal, but to cast out demons again with only a word. He spoke and the demons left. Well, that's amazing. He proved ultimate authority. He proved to be Lord so that though his disciples might initially be tempted to doubt his teachings about salvation being for all men, his authority to say such a thing would be above question, would it not? He says salvation's for the Gentiles. And as soon as those questions start stirring in their heart, well, he can't really mean that. He must be meaning something else. You know how Jesus is always saying one thing, but you know he's a parable guy. He's meaning something else. No, he goes and he delivers not only people from their illnesses, he delivers many from demonic possession, something no one else had ever done as far as we know, with no more than a word. He spoke and they obeyed his authority. Could there be any doubt that he had the right to say who would be saved? No. Couldn't be. In particular, though, one last thing as we close. We see that Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Question. Why is this so noteworthy? I mean, did Jesus never heal anybody else in any of the disciples' families? Every time he healed somebody that was somehow related to one of the disciples, does it note it in the Bible? I don't think so. Why is this so noteworthy? Is it just an obscure side note, maybe? Matthew just needed some filler for his gospel, so it would surely be longer than Mark's. No, he didn't need that. That's not the case. We see that after Jesus would rise again from the dead and ascend back to heaven, these disciples would become apostles sent to preach salvation to all those whom the Lord would call and grant faith. In a scenario much like Jesus' encounter with this centurion, we see in Acts chapter 10 that Peter would have another encounter with another centurion named Cornelius. God would speak to Peter, of course, through a vision concerning his ability to make all men clean and then send uh, Peter to Cornelius' home. Peter entered the house of Cornelius and began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, as, as much as Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, we see that he wasn't the one God would use initially. 
to present the gospel to those outside of the nation of Israel. We see at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God and believe. So Peter would be the first to extend the gospel to the Gentiles. Perhaps God knew that for Peter, a Jew raised in Jewish culture, raised in Jewish tradition, totally averse to the idea that Gentiles would be saved initially. Maybe he knew that for Peter to be able to do what he was going to be called to do, he would need to be able to look back and see how Jesus had not only healed a centurion servant, not only cast out demons from some random people that maybe he didn't really even know and never saw again maybe, but he needed to be able to look back and see how Jesus had healed his own mother-in-law right after he had extended such grace to this Roman centurion. Can you imagine the family get-togethers years later and maybe his mother-in-law would say, do you remember the time, I remember when Jesus touched me. Where were you coming from, Peter? Oh, he had, we'd just been through Capernaum, met some Roman centurion. He spoke of Gentiles being brought into the kingdom. I wonder how many, I just wonder how many times that came up. I wonder how many times Peter went back to that anchor for his faith when God called him maybe to extend this grace to the Gentiles. You never know how God will use his work through events in your life to affect the life of another. You never know. Some of the things that seem so mundane to you could be just exactly what someone else needs in their life. They need to hear it. They need to know about it. They need to know, hey, I've been through this. I've experienced this. You're going to be okay. I was in the same place God brought me through. One thing is true, though. In all that occurs, whether we understand it or want to accept it or not, Jesus is Lord. He's always exercising his lordship over all creation. Blessed are those who have been given the eyes to see it and trust him in that capacity. And he's calling all men from all sorts of places and situations and backgrounds tonight to believe and be saved. He is continually stirring the hearts of his people to believe and accept his teachings and be changed by them in Progressive sanctification. He is continually offering his servants the opportunity to share in the joy of being fellow laborers in his kingdom work. And I pray that we will all be granted faith to respond rightly tonight and every day. So as we close, the question we should ask is, is Jesus my Lord? Does he truly have total ownership in my life? And if I believe that, if I claim that, what areas of my life is he currently proving his lordship in? Does my time belong to me or does it belong to him? Does my money belong to me or does it belong to him? Does my, do my efforts and my talents and my abilities belong to me or do they belong to him? Do I get to go do whatever I want to do for my hobbies or pastimes or do I line my life up with what he's called me to do? And depending on how we answer that question tonight, we probably need to make some decisions. Maybe somebody does not know Christ. You need to know him tonight. 
You can come to me, you can come to Brother Tony, Brother Kyle, you can come to so many in this room who would love to talk with you. It doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not saved based on who you are of not being. It's not by your will or exertion, it's because He's decided to show mercy to you and give you faith. That would cause you to flee judgment and run to the mercy seat. And if you are in Christ tonight, what is God calling you to do and where is God calling you to draw from your experience of Him and your knowledge of Him, the places that He's not only shown up in your life and showed you how powerful He is in your life personally, but also in the Word? What is He calling you to do that you're not currently doing, but you know you should be doing? We need to surrender to Him tonight. So we'll pray. And uh, we're not going to have music, I don't think, or anything like that, but... Um, you know, if, if you need to pray and you want to pray, just, just stay where you are and pray. I believe everybody will be respectful of that. And um, if you need to go, you can quietly go. And if you want to conversate, I'm sure that the, the sanctuary is probably about free at this point. Um, and we just pray that God does His work in our lives. Father, I love you and I praise you. And I just pray that, that I preach what you want me to preach, Father God. I pray that I made much of Jesus. He's the only one with the authority to command. He's the only one with the authority to demand things of people who are so rebellious and so fallen. And we think that we've got it all right and, and dare to say that we're wrong. But Lord, we need to listen. We need grace to hear and to believe, Father God, because... He's right. He is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He's the one who has the right to make every decision for us. He's the one that has the right to command everything in our lives. Lord, I'm, I'm asking you, please give us faith. Lord, if anyone here or if anyone listening uh, doesn't have saving faith in Christ, if he's not truly the Lord of their life, Father, just let them know that if he's not their Lord, he's not their Savior. But, uh, but they, if they were to repent and believe the gospel, he'd be both. And he changed their life forever, that he'd free them from the bondages of sin, that, that they would be released from a slavery that leads to death, and they'd be incorporated into a slavery that leads to righteousness and life. And Lord, we need that. God, I want to thank you so much for doing that in the lives of so many people here. My brothers and sisters, Father God, we didn't deserve it. We never deserved it. But I want to thank you for it, Lord. We just praise you for it. And we don't thank you for it enough. So right now, I just want to take a minute and do that, God. Thank you so much for what you've done in so many lives here under the sound of my voice. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our church. And I pray that you would um, that you'd give us vision, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us uh, a burden for the things that you want us to do, Father God. That we would be people who seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you. And that it would show, uh, not only in our lives, but it would show in every part of our lives. And it would show in our community. And it was showing our families, Father God. If it means that people despise us and hate us, let it be, Father God. If it means that people uh, hear the gospel and reject it, Lord, that's, that's your choice. But if it be that people hear the gospel and their lives are changed and they respond in faith, Father God, we praise you for it. We love you, God, and we give you praise and glory and honor tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.